Welcome back to The Lever. In our last episode, we cut through the fear-mongering and got straight to the heart of AI. We looked at not just the tasks that are being replaced, but how we as humans will be elevated to new heights. And how AI and robotics still have a long way to go before they're anywhere close to autonomy. I like to tease my robot building friends by saying, well, okay, there's one home robot. It's been 25 years, there's been one home robot. What's the next mass uh, consumer robot that's gonna be bought for the home? And they don't really have a good answer because most of the problems are hard. That's Pulitzer Prize winning retired New York Times tech journalist, John Markoff. He spent 30 years reporting on the tech industry. He asks big questions while he keeps friends on their toes with a little humor. It seems like every headline lately highlights the worries of how technology will disrupt how we work. And yet, large-scale innovation takes time. In today's segment, we'll dive deep into how tech will change business. Experts like John will give us insight into how the game is changing. And wow, is there a lot to cover. Whereas our previous episodes focused on our roles as individuals at work, today we'll spend more time understanding the system level changes that will impact the future of work at large. I really think there are four major pillars under future of work. Here's Shuo Chen, general partner at IOVC and UC Berkeley faculty member to set us up. The first one I think about is really digital transformation. How do we catch up all organizations with the latest technology so we could minimize the amount of boring time spent at work and mm, maximize yeah, yeah. the actual funding engaging times that we do interesting work. And the second pillar that I really pay attention to is automation of work, as in what we do at work every day. So with more automation, there's kind of two pieces to this. There is what work gets automated and optimized and more streamlined. But then there's also the, what do we do with the additional human hours that are left with more work being automated? And the third pillar that we pay attention to is thinking about hybridization of workplace. So the where we work. Not in a traditional sense of just hybrid work, we work at home or we do remote work. We've been investing in this space for the past almost 10 years. So there was no way we could have foreseen that the pandemic was coming. But since the earliest days when we were investing in this space, it's all about how do we enable geographically diverse teams to innovate together? A startup that we invested in that since got acquired called Transcriptic. Essentially, the founders realized that whenever people needed to run tests and labs in physical spaces, they would very quickly run out of lab space. But you have a lot of labs that are well under capacity. So Transcriptic allowed researchers to upload their research experiments to labs that were under capacity, allowed people to do research in physical labs together in a hybrid manner so that they could better utilize lab space and resources. Last but not least, the fourth pillar that we look at under future of work is really diversity of workforce. Not just diversity in the traditional sense of, say, gender, race, disability, etc., but really thinking about with technology, what kind of new workforces traditionally underrepresented in the workforce do we have the ability to enable? Perhaps these are people who typically didn't have access to education or training in order to perform certain jobs well, but with now the power of technology and better assistance, they could get personalized training to do better on the job. Thanks, Shuo, for setting the scene there. Now let's try and imagine some specifics. I want to focus on the first two pillars, transformation and automation. 
When we use tech like AI to automate certain tasks, it leaves room for more important things. Corey Heimel, Web3 consultant and VP of product at Gigster, puts it more bluntly. Uh, what a lot of people fail to uh, kind of realize is that the whole goal, AI is really good at doing like low level kind of repeatable tasks, right? That, um, that humans really de don't deserve to be doing. And when I say don't deserve to be doing, it's that like, it's so easy. Like as a human, you, you should be working on things more complex. Like you're a human being, you're the pinnacle of what our known space is. Like there's no reason that you should be doing little automated data entry, right? Like go do something cooler. So what is something cooler? Since we're talking about this from a business perspective and doesn't seem nearly as cool, we need to be asking what more important or higher level things can you do to add more value to the business? There are a few different schools of thought here. According to our experts, one of them is the concept of optimization. We can take some notes from manufacturing to imagine what a new role of optimizer would look like. A lot of what our startups are working on is the interface from the robot to the person to make it easier to use. Here's Joyce Sidopoulos, co-founder and chief of operations at Mass Robotics, the leading robotics accelerator in Boston. So a factory worker doesn't need to really understand the ins and outs of a robot. They just need to understand the interface. The interface mm -hmm. could be text commands. It could be visual commands where mm. showing the robot and, and moving the robot arm and showing them what they need to do and then stepping back and letting the robot do it. So a lot of it is going to be monitoring it's going to be improving processes rather than just standing there day by day or every day doing the same thing. The job becomes about teaching the robot to do a better job with the task, maybe more efficiently, maybe higher quality. Then perhaps after validating the improvement and presenting findings to higher ups, this learning could be applied across all factories worldwide. The nice thing about um, AI and um, machine learning is that it can be transferred from computer to computer and, and robot to robot. So it's not, um, it's not like each robot has to learn on its own every single time. It's easy to comprehend what the optimizer's role would be in manufacturing, but what would it look like to be an optimizer in a more creative or knowledge-based workspace? Corey Heimel has some ideas. Like hard examples. I think one of the newest one is like a, you know, a prompt engineer, basically mm -hmm. someone that's able to query uh, machine learning or AI models right. and get the best type of response out. Obviously a new field there. Um, I think there's going to be a lot in the, maybe a lot more springing up in the data tagging, you know, type of area, because mm -hmm. again, you have to feed a AI information that humans are able to curate for it to learn to some degree. If we took a content or writing team as an example, instead of having an entire team of writers cranking out content, the primary role would be a prompt or content engineer who generates ideas and concepts for content, uses AI to create them, and then hands off to an editor to achieve a similar outcome. Just like in manufacturing, the content engineer would work to optimize the creation of content ideas and the quality of AI output. That's the space of optimization and the role of the optimizer. Another area of business that is ripe for change is communication. We talk about how manufacturing and physical robotics can share ideas. The same framework applies to knowledge work too. I'd argue that really the only thing that has ever held our ideas back has been our ability to convey them well and at scale. And I think that what excites me about AI as a tool for creatives and for marketers is it removes so much of that barrier in the way of getting your ideas out if you use it well.
That's Megan Keeney Anderson, CMO at Jasper AI, an AI-powered content creation and marketing tool. We think about the writing process and, you know, there's ideation, there's research, there's composition, there's editing, there's distribution. And so much of our time and energy today without AI goes to the composition part that we often ignore all the rest. If you can bring that composition bar down, uh, you can reinvest that time into things like doing original interviews or uh, original research, coming up with new angles, you know, the stuff that really makes writing good. AI makes it easier to share ideas and insight because it promises to eliminate the time it takes to craft coherent and targeted messages. And this doesn't just apply to marketing. Let me introduce you to Vivek Mehta, CEO of Weave, an AI-powered employee engagement software that is currently focused on eliminating workforce burnout in hospitals. Thanks, sir. I saw this growing disconnect between employees and leaders, and this disconnect was leading to burnout, project failure, and ultimately turnover. It was from a combination of changing technologies, faster paces of work, changes in culture and loyalty, um, and ultimately all of that adding up into this shift in leverage. And so it really begs the question, how do we build strong employee leader relationships at scale? Weave is an AI employee retention chatbot that asks employees the right questions at the right time in order to provide resource, answers, and sometimes elevating problems that would have never come to light. So one of our clients is a six facility hospital system with 10,000 nurses, doctors, clinical providers. Um, and my main champion there is their head of employee retention. Let's call her Jane. So Jane is a absolute rock star. And over the past 10 years, she's built from scratch a uh, employee retention program. And when other hospitals were seeing 50 to 60% turnover, her program was seeing single digits. You may have seen this before. Some leaders seem to have this magical ability to inspire their teams, ask the right questions, and dramatically outperform others. But what if I could scale Jane? What if we could have those tens of thousands of ongoing conversations with employees asking the same questions, recommending the same solutions, providing the same helpful nudges for leaders, that Jane would have done without having to spend her valuable time. And that's what I believe the power of technology can be, uh, what AI can be, giving Jane her life back, being able to replicate the results that she had at her hospital at any hospital in the country. Now we can all benefit from her specific intelligence. How about that? Instead of relying on the traditional method of collecting feedback, generalizing findings, and then sharing intelligence broadly across an organization, AI can analyze specific data that has just been proven effective, elevate it, and scale these findings immediately across the company. Imagine what these capabilities will look like in just five years. PitchBook estimates the market for work-based AI applications and enterprise technology alone will rise to $98 billion in 2026, from nearly $43 billion this year. The U.S. used to be primarily a production economy. And when we were still doing that, we were automating the physical doing. This is Liz Wilkie, principal economist at Gusto. The U.S. is now a knowledge economy, and we're in the process of automating some of the knowledge doing. And I think we're in a transition where the U.S. is still going to be a knowledge economy, but we're going to go farther than that. We are going to be an ideas and meaning economy, right? Which is sort of a higher level set of knowledge work than we've previously been. After speaking to Liz, I couldn't help but think about how our decades long use of knowledge economy could be limiting our thinking. Although knowledge or intelligence in the information sense has become the most valuable resource from an economic perspective, 
It is a fallacy to think that the creation of value is forever pinned to it. Instead, there's a cycle of knowing and doing happening every time a technology revolution comes to be understood and implemented en masse. We'll go over this a bit more in season two, but I just wanted to give you a taste. If you're hungry for more, you can click the link on the description to read more about the cycle of innovation. But we have lots more to cover. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about Web3. I'm one of the people who coined the term Web3. Actually, we, we, we referred to it initially as Web3.0. This was in 2006, and I was referring then to the semantic web, not the crypto web. So mm -hmm. somehow the crypto <laughs> community took that term and repurposed it. Web3 has a lot of baggage associated with it. That said, at its core, Web3 holds some brilliant innovations that could impact how most businesses run in the future. Let's break it down. Web1, we categorize as the read-only web. Sites lack sophistication and users could not contribute yet. The focus was on knowledge sharing. Web2, a read-write period we find ourselves in now, constitutes reading and writing, as in users generate content that populates the site. Think Facebook and Instagram and how these sites operate via the user base contributing content. The focus is on shared experiences. Web3 is the read-write own era of the internet. It's hard to understand just how much being able to prove ownership matters, but think about it this way. Here's Corey Heimel, VP of product at Gigster. But if you think about it, the whole reason our entire economy, right? And I would, I would even argue that a large portion of civilization is able to even exist is because the ability to prove ownership. You can prove that you own land. You can prove that you did work. You can prove that you have money. You can prove that you have credit. You can prove that you have done all of these things. Um, and that has allowed, you know, basically systemic growth as a, as a, as a species. Um, and that's what, and that, and web three now has that kind of kernel of, you can, you can have digital proof that you own something, or you created some value, or you bought and sold some asset. I know it doesn't seem like much. So what? You can prove that you own something online. So why are we talking about this for the future of work? Here's Sherman Vosmagir author of Token Economy and Director of Crypto Economics at the University of Vienna. I think in order to be able to understand the future of work, we first need to understand the concept of DAOs. That stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And in order to understand the beautiful structure, we need to understand cryptocurrency and tokens like Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a piece of code. The protocol is a piece of code. Uh, that anyone can download and start running, operating a Bitcoin node and performing various different types of Bitcoin operations contributing to the upkeep of the network, right? So it's autonomous because it's permissionless. Anyone can mm. contribute, become a contributor without anyone else allowing them to become a contributor. Contributors connected by a common goal support the development of a public good. In this case, people are incentivized to mine Bitcoin by the value of that currency. This is like a bunch of freelance workers joining various projects. The fact that it's the kind of the paradigm shift is that we have a public infrastructure that is collectively maintained by yeah. incentivizing the individual. And this is a paradigm shift because it transcends the idea of capitalism versus communism. It mm -hmm. unifies these both ideas. There is no organization governing the payment structure of the project. A project simply exists and talent from anywhere in the world can hop on and work toward the goal of the project, contributing as much or as little as they want. You can think of it as a, um, as a you know, an LLC made up of tons of different members where decisions are voted upon by a community. 
uh, work is compensated, you know, out to those doing it based on, you know, peer reviews and kind of publicly verifiable levels of effort. Um, and a lot of people hear that and they're like, well, that sounds ridiculous. Um, because it is crazy, but it, but it worked, right? That's Corey Heimel again. And while this kind of organizational structure is so young and unfamiliar, it's growing. Forbes reports that 4,000 DAOs exist today. Although relatively small, only 700 existed last year. And while we probably won't see companies transform into DAOs anytime soon, the concept has some legs. I do think that the concept of a hybrid DAO, which is basically where you say, okay, well, we know how an LLC, as an example, works. Right. There are mechanics from a DAO that are very interesting to look at, um, whether that's you know around how do they incentivize participation, how do they incentivize engagement, how do they able to make like very creative decisions yes. at scale um you know how are they able to execute against ideas quickly a lot of things that you can take from a business leader's perspective and adopt into your existing corporation or organization to build on this idea you could have a core set of leaders at an organization who all oversee certain projects entirely executed by highly specialized freelancers and consultants as an example Think of the product manager at a software company who is tasked with creating a feature that increases daily active users by a certain percentage. They can spend time researching users for the best possible solution and then contract a specialist or a DAO who have done this type of solution before. The output is more efficient, higher quality, and done all through one full-time employee. With technology, I do think it's easier than ever before to be a fractional worker. If you were to think about technologies like blockchain, uh, I'm leading a couple of research projects at Berkeley and we've invested in startups in the space where with blockchain technology, it is easier to build a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization than ever before. Of course, our governance structures needs to evolve in order to meet technologies, yeah. but it is easier than ever before to be an employee that's not even an employee where I'm contributing to say five, six different DAO projects and I just get compensated based on what I contribute. And what I contribute is the same because that's the area that I'm really good at, say coding is one part of it or UX is one part of it, but I just do the same work for six companies or six DAOs at the same time. Some of you may not know this, but when I'm not researching the impact of technology in the future of work, I serve as CEO at Lever Talent, a progressive talent strategy agency. We spend a lot of our time working with clients to plan for how the new roles and org structures we discussed today, which are a response to the technological shifts, will impact their business strategy or evolve the employee-employee relationship over the next decade. Full-time workers will be mostly strategic and mission-driven rather than execution-driven. Their success will hinge on their raw human abilities, soft skills like critical thinking, subjective decision-making, and their ability to articulate ideas, learn quickly, and optimize. I believe that the upcoming changes in how we work will enable leaders to tackle higher impact problems. More than ever, we'll rely on humans to be more human and leave the fixed pieces to the machine. If you're a leader, consider how you can take this information and begin to think of future structures within your organization that make sense for your company. Are you building a moat to slow the proliferation of technology or are you embracing it? experimenting with new systems to adapt and grow because of it. Think about some of the things we talked about in this episode. Optimization, communication, Schwo's four pillars of the future of work. Knowledge is power. The more we know what is coming and how the world will change, the more we can prepare to capitalize on it. Whether for your business or for your career, 
I'm Drew Fortin, and thank you for tuning in to The Lever. And always remember, with technology, our leverage is limitless. Let's embrace it and change the world. Join me on the next episode where we ask the ultimate question, what is the value of a human? And until next time, we'll let Roomba have the room. <laughs>